1842, a young German man was sent by his father from Bremen to Manchester to learn the family textiles business. Manchester was a world-class centre of manufacturing, also known as Cottonopolis. When he arrived, Friedrich found that the process of industrialisation had split the city into two nations, the rich and the poor. He was stunned by the ugliness and the pollution of Manchester. He stood on Dulcie Bridge over the River Irk and saw, these are his words, a narrow, coal-black, stinking river full of filth and rubbish, which it deposits on the more low-lying right bank. In dry weather, this bank presents the spectacle of a series of the most revolting blackish-green puddles of slime, from the depths of which bubbles a miasmatic gases, constantly rising and creating a stench which is unbearable even to those standing on the bridge 40 or 50 feet above the level of the water. Now, the surrounding tanneries, factories, bone mills and gas works all poured their waste into the river, and while on the bank all the filth offal and debris from the surrounding area was tipped. The river was overlooked by, by barrack-like factories and crumbling, smoky houses, the ground floor of which were uninhabitable and used as public toilets by anyone who lived in the area. Friedrich went into the slums of Manchester's growing new town, and he discovered a way of life that was difficult for him to comprehend. Here's what he wrote. It was hard to convey a true impression of the filth, ruin, and uninhabitableness the defiance of all considerations of cleanliness, ventilation and health, which characterised this district of some 30,000 people. And in the houses of Manchester's working classes, Friedrich claimed that no cleanliness, no convenience and consequently no comfortable family life is possible. In such dwellings, only a physically degenerate race, robbed of all humanity, degraded, reduced morally and physically to bestiality, could feel at home. Has it changed much? We think so. And yet, the city was set up so that the rich could live in it for years without coming into contact with the poor or the working people, as long as they stuck to certain streets that were lined with bourgeois shops on their way to and from work. Then the wealthy middle classes would swan off to the breezy heights of Cheatham Hill, Broughton and Pendleton to enjoy the wholesome country air and find comfortable houses without ever coming into contact with the consequences of their wealth creation. Now, the man's name was Friedrich Engels, and his experiences led him to write the classic protest work, The Condition of the Working Class in England. You may know his friend Karl Marx. The Apostle Peter also tells a tale of two cities here in this chapter, chapter 4. Two nations that live side by side in the same place but his lives are entirely different. They're not financially different. They're not physically different. These people share the same neighborhoods. They drive the same kind of cars. They ride the same bikes. They go to the same schools. They work the same kind of jobs. But the difference between these two nations is more subtle and, dare I say, it, even more profound than between rich and poor. It is spiritual. One nation is the way of life that the pagans choose, the other is the people of God. And Peter is showing two entirely different cities within the same city. Just look with me at verse 3, will you? Chapter 4, verse 3. It's there on page 
12.20. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Now, what is, what is going on with this list? Some of these things, uh, I've read this out to several friends this week, they, they didn't even know what half of them were. Debauchery sounds like something out of Shakespeare. And as for orgies, I mean, that, that's a bit Roman Empire, isn't it? What is he talking about? Well, let me put them in some more contemporary English, and I've got them here on this slide, showing how they all kind of link together. Debauchery could be more generally described as immoral behavior. Now, it can be sexual behavior, it's out of control, unrestrained, or it can even be violent behavior. It's immoral, it's breaking moral codes. Lust, we're probably a bit more familiar with, but lust, again, can be more than just sexual. Lust and overwhelming desire for things, even good things, that obsess a person and can take them over and dominate their life. Now, drunkenness is pretty familiar. There have been quite a few moves in the city to cut down on low-cost bars in Fallowfield, Russia, and places like that, where students can get absolutely wasted for a few pounds. We're very familiar with public drunkenness in our context. What about what the Bible here translates as orgies? Well, this is, in the pagan world, feasting in praise of their gods that involved really pigging out, going over the top, indulgent, gluttonous kind of feasting and drinking too much. And then the word that was translated carousing is really partying hard. Partying hard. And finally, what Peter calls detestable idolatry is the worship of false gods. Idols. Things that are made to look like human beings or animals or things in the created world. Things that people pin their hopes to and worship and give their lives to. These are six features that Peter says characterizes this pagan world. In fact, it's the pagan dream. It's the air that pagans breathe. And they're astonished that God's followers don't join in with their reckless living. Now, Peter has painted a picture there, a pen portrait of the pagan world. Now, let me ask, do you find it attractive? Living in lust, drunkenness, gluttonous feasting, partying hard. Maybe there's elements to that that are attractive. But let me ask you, does it work? Does the dream work? Does it satisfy people? You think about people who pursue that kind of lifestyle. Are they happy? Let me ask even further, what kind of world does that dream create? What sort of community does it build? Andy Doyle was a gifted young corporate accountant with a big five firm. He was training in a major UK city, Birmingham, and he was living life to the full, or so he thought. He was a good-looking guy, took care of his body, worked out a lot, had some big muscles, big guns. He was a clever guy. He earned good money. He was passing all his accountants' exams first time. He had an expensive lifestyle to go with it. By day, he was the life and soul of the office. Sort of fun character, high achiever, great to be around. By night, he was doing and selling cocaine and relentlessly pursuing women in the nightclubs of Birmingham. Now, he's a friend of mine. He doesn't know how many women he slept with. But he told me this. 
you know what? I was always anxious. It was all about performance. Sometimes I'd be having sex with a girl because I wanted to sleep with her friend. And I had to perform well so that she would tell her friend how good I was in bed. Cocaine, booze, girls, partying. How was it for Andy? Ultimately, he found it was a hollow, anxious, and impoverished way of life. Then God dealt him a severe mercy. His health collapsed. The firm moved him out of the city to a quiet country office where he was able to recuperate. And in that office was a posh accountant who also happened to be a God-botherer. And in week two, he invited Andy to a lunchtime Bible study. Whoever would have thought such a thing? Well, Andy thought, what have I got to lose? And by week three of the Bible study, Andy Dowell had become a follower of Jesus Christ. He never looked back. People sometimes assume that the purpose of Christianity is to stop us having fun. And that the pagans have all the good times. Maybe we Christians are sometimes responsible for reinforcing that idea. But let's think about this. In reality, isn't it time to see that the emperor has no clothes? That pagan dream is empty. And let me ask, what is at the centre of that set of six behaviours that we looked at? What is at the centre? Here's what I want to propose to you. The centre is me. All the arrows are pointing inward. It's all about me. It's all about self. Self is at the centre. It's all about feeding and pleasing and trying to satisfy yourself. Self-gratification. Filling the empty void with pleasure, if you can. Quenching your thirst by gulping, grasping, groping, all you can. But these pleasures are gone so fast. And because this life and this world is all people have got, they take the good things of this world and they twist them or they use them to excess. Because that's what all of these behaviours have in common. They're all good things gone wrong. A good thing that's been abused or twisted or used to excess is sex, good, food, drink, parties, worship. These are all good things created by God to be enjoyed by us, used in their proper place. But the pagan dream takes them and sucks them in and tries to fill the void and then chokes the life out of them. A number of years ago, I talked to the chief executive of a charity that worked with alcoholics and campaigned about alcohol abuse. He told me that according to their research, most people who drink too much do so because they are bald. Bald. Now, I'm not getting at those of you who are follically challenged here. Bald is an acronym. B-A-L-D. Here are the four reasons why people drink too much. Bored. Angry. Lonely. Depressed. Bored, angry, lonely, and depressed. And those feelings, they're under the surface of so many people's lives, aren't they? When you get to know people, when you get behind the bravado and get behind the makeup, you get to know what life is really like for them. Being bored, bored, angry, lonely, depressed, is right underneath the pagan dream. And the dream doesn't work. It doesn't really take away being bored, angry, lonely, or depressed, except for a few drunken hours I was happy in the haze of the drunken hour but heaven knows I'm miserable now does nobody here know the Smiths you could have finished that Peter says look you have 
spent enough time in the past, you've wasted enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Now, in case anyone here thinks I'm just having a go at pagans or students, (laughs) let me just point out, by the way, there are respectable versions of participating in the pagan dream as well. Some tabloid newspapers in this country, we won't name any, have an amazing schizophrenia. They thrive on stories about people's excessive behaviour, which they disapprove of, and they sell a lot of copies of newspapers by people who want to read all about it. As I was working on this sermon on Friday on a long train journey, I was writing and I I looked across and I saw an older man, probably in his mid-60s, who was sitting across the aisle from me with a newspaper in his hands. And I noticed that he spent a considerable amount of time studying an article with this lurid title. Name and shame the sex in the street couples. Name and shame the sex in the street couples. Now, I have to say, is that really newsworthy? On a day when an aeroplane was shot down over Ukrainian airspace. Why read it? And naming and shaming people have sex in the street. What? It's voyeurism. Reading about it is the respectable way of taking part in the pagan lifestyle, reading about all the juicy details whilst condemning it. There's one website of a newspaper, I won't name it, which the newspaper prides itself on being a kind of moral voice for this country. And down the side is something that our neighbours call the sidebar of shame, which is full of cleavage and stories about people's excessive lifestyle that draws readers to the website even as they're reading about how they disapprove of it. You see how it works? So let's not be too high and mighty here. Peter says, you've wasted enough time living in that way, doing what the pagans choose to do. Now that is the tale of one city. Underneath the glitter and the glamour, it's a pretty grimy, ugly and desperate place. It's a place where everyone is living for me. Let's look at the other city. Would you turn with me to verse 7 of 1 Peter 3? The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's six more things, okay? Once again, they're all clustered around a center. So as I briefly go through these things, which are a depiction not of a pagan dream but of Christian reality, let me just ask you, what is at the heart of this way of life? What is at the heart of this way of life? Firstly, he says, um, be alert and of sober mind, clear thinking, watchful, so that you can pray. So that you can pray. Which means that the Christian reality is is a life of constant dependence on God, looking to God, and thinking about other people and their needs and bringing them before our Heavenly Father. Alert, watchful, praying. Secondly, the Christian reality is about deep loving. 
He says, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So, in the Christian reality, we acknowledge that we're going to wrong each other, let each other down, sin against each other, but we will determine to love the other person, bless you, and to do everything we can to restore them, strengthen them, bless them, make their life good, help them to flourish. It's a life of love poured out for other people. Thirdly, it's hospitality. But did you notice? Hospitality without grumbling. You know, it's one thing to give somebody a meal or a cup of tea at your house. It's another thing to still be glad about it when they've gone home and they've eaten all your food. Or they came in and they just took that last banana. You know, we, we struggle with this. I'm going to confess something now with my wife here. Sometimes people have meals at our house and afterwards we kind of think, oh man, you know, it's costing us a lot of money. Hospitality. Can it be shown without grumbling? I'm just so glad to share the fact that I've got a house and some food and I've been to the supermarket. And let's share it together. Hospitality without grumbling. He also says, use whatever gift you have to, res- to serve others using gifts. Now, what that means, by implication, every single one of us has a gift. God has given you something, a talent, an ability, a, a home, possessions. He's given you a life. He's given you some skills, something. Every one of you has got a gift. And he says, use what you've got to serve others. Some churches actually have a kind of questionnaire when a when person does a, a new membership course in which they ask, what are your gifts? And how can you use them to serve the community? What are your gifts? You're an absolutely unique person created by God and endowed with him by him with certain inalienable potential and gifts. What are your gifts? How can you use them to serve others? Peter says, he really covers everything with these two examples. Words and deeds. If anybody speaks, if anybody serves. So firstly, if anybody speaks, it's got to be wise. He says, someone who speaks, and this isn't just preachers, by the way. It's any of us who speak to each other should do so as though we're speaking the very words of God. Now that puts a bit of a premium on the words, doesn't it? It makes us think about what we're saying to each other. Your words can change the course of somebody's life. You can all think about words that were said to us when we were children. Words that may have shaped us forever. You know, words are so powerful. They have weight. They can be heavy. And they can be a blessing. They can encourage somebody. They can build them up. They can, they can change their life for good. Speak your words to one another, he says, as if you were speaking from God. Speaking the good news to each other to strengthen, build up, and bless. And finally, he says, anybody who serves, serve, minister to each other with the strength that God provides. Acknowledging that really, whatever we do is just because God gave us the ability to do it in the first place. That's got to lead to humble serving. And not burning out because we're all doing it in our own strength, but doing it relying on God. Alert praying, deep loving, cheerful hospitality, using our gifts, wise speaking, humble serving. Now, what is at the heart of this way of life, this Christian reality, this city? I'm going to suggest the heart of it is you in terms of the other person. It's not all about me anymore. It's about you. I want to serve you, love you, give you my home, use my gifts for you, speak to you, pray for you. And the ultimate you, 
that we're, we're living for is, is God. This is the living for the will of God, he says. This is the heart of Christian reality. It's that we live an other-focused life. As you can see, the arrow's pointing out. The direction of travel is completely outward. It's a different kind of world. Now let me ask, what kind of city will this build? What kind of community will this create? If we live like this, it will be a place where there's no racism. It will be a place where there's no classism. A place where there's no hatred, resentment or tribalism because love covers a multitude of sins. A place of safety and plenty for all because homes are open and stuff is shared generously. A place of sweetness and grace, understanding and forgiveness where if somebody does wrong, it doesn't end a relationship and finish a friendship, but it provides an opportunity for growth. A place where words are used to build each other up and deeds are done to help each other flourish. It will produce a warm, rich, strong city. And this is Christian reality, according to Peter. Because the heart of it is about building each other up. Now, where do you want to live? Where do you want to live? I think I can guess the answer. We don't want to live in the pagan dream, where it's all about me and it's all empty. We want to live in this place, the rich, warm, strong city of God. So the question then becomes, how do we find this alternative city? How do we get there? Where is it? The answer is, it's the church of Jesus Christ, the people who bear his name among the nations. The local church, according to the Bible, is the hope of the world. It's an alternative city within the existing city. We've got the same houses as other people. We've got the same kind of jobs, bikes, cars. We live in the same sort of neighborhoods. We go to the same schools. We do the same jobs. But in that, in that context, we are pursuing a radically different vision, a different way of life, with a totally different centre. It's all about living for God and living for others, not for me. A friend of mine uh, works in Boston. He's telling me about his boss's son, who at quite a young age, I think in his early 20s, developed a a rare form of cancer. And uh, the treatment was absolutely radical and severe. should have asked one of our medics to explain this before the meeting, but essentially they had to submit him to intense radiotherapy so that his immune system was destroyed. And then they had to grow a new immune system in his body. And during this time, which took at least six months, maybe more, he just couldn't be near people or go in the house or, you know, he he had to be extremely careful. He had the immune system of, of a young baby and anything could have made him sick. But after a while, he he grew an entirely new system inside him that meant he was now healthy and cured and free of the disease. Now, that is an incredible image of a new nature being developed within an existing body. Something healthy and new coming where before there was only death and decay. And that's what this image is, that the church, the people of God, are a new system, a new A new nature, a new city within the existing city. So only one question there remains. How do we get to live like this? 
How do we get to live like this? The answer is not me trying to make you feel bad because you don't live like this. But let me tell you, you're not going to like the answer to the question, how are we going to live like this, but we have to go there. It's at the beginning of the chapter. The answer is, you've got to be ready to suffer. Here it is, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Arm yourselves with the same attitude that Christ had. Jesus Christ was ready. He determined. He armed himself with the posture that he was going to suffer in his body for his whole life. Peter's argument here is that those who have suffered in the body are, are done with sin. It's a bit like people who have been really sick, people who've survived cancer or have had a near-death experience. You know, you've ever heard somebody talking like that? They often say that it gave them a new clarity. They thought they were going to die, they were at death's door, they came back, they realised what life was all about. They realised they'd wasted a lot of their time on things that were not worth their time. And some things need to be prized beyond all measure. It gave them clarity and focus. Whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. And this was how Jesus Christ lived his entire life. This was his attitude. It was his resolve. Here's how. In privation, temptation, humiliation, rejection and dereliction. Privation. Jesus served as a faithful son and as a carpenter in his earthly father's business for about 30 years, living in a pretty average town, working. And he went into his public ministry about the age of 30. And as soon as he was baptized by John the baptizer, the Holy Spirit came down. And what happened? Was Jesus Christ then led to a wonderful, glorious throne? The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, where he fasted for 40 days. 40 days of fasting. I don't know about you, I'm grumpy if I miss lunch. 40 days. And while he was in that position of privation, he relied on God for every single minute. And then there was temptation. The enemy came to him and said, you know what? You could command those stones to become bread. And they say that once people have been fasting for more than about 20 days, you start thinking about food all the time. You know, this, a little smell of food can send you off into a rapture. And there's this tempter coming and saying, you know, look at those stones. You could make them into bread. And Jesus replied with the word of God. Then the enemy takes him up to a high place and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, you know what, you can have it all now. You can have your throne and glory now. Just bow down to me. And Jesus replied, He's going to keep God's word. Do it God's way. The way that would lead him ultimately to humiliation. Because Jesus' life, not just the cross, but his whole life was led in misunderstanding and rejection and being ostracized and marginalized, being homeless for a while, living with a bunch of followers who most of the time didn't get it, let him down, ultimately betrayed him, rejected him, and finally on the cross, left, abandoned, and crushed by God the Father. 
Crying out, Seb reminded us earlier on, crying out on the cross, quoting the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandoned, derelict, but ready to suffer, ready to suffer. You remember that time in the Garden of Gethsemane where he knelt and prayed? We've talked about this a lot here. He knelt and prayed and the sweat that ran off his face was like drops of blood and he prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Even so, not my will but yours be done. He was living for the will of God. He had the attitude that he was prepared to suffer. He had resolve. Resolve. Every single minute of his 33 years, he was ready to suffer. He had done with sin. He had no part of it. Hebrews talks about it like this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Later on in Hebrews, it says this. So let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. But isn't that our problem? Friends, are you growing weary and losing heart? Are you growing weary and losing heart in the Christian life? What's the solution that the New Testament provides for us, weary and losing heart, friends? My wife and I are prone to say to each other, we need a holiday. Do you know what? He doesn't actually say that here. The way to... uh, deal with our problems of growing weary and losing heart is not to have another holiday but to consider him to fix our eyes on him the pioneer the one who's running front the perfecter, the one who will make it all fine so here's a simple diagnostic if you're weary and losing heart and some of you are are you fixing your eyes on him On what do you fix your eyes? This isn't rocket science. How much time have you spent this week in the Bible? How much time this week have you spent in prayer? Our Muslim friends at the moment are fasting for 30 days and they pray five times a day. We have a relationship with the living God. How much time this week have you spent in Christian fellowship? Just in a meaningful conversation with another Christian where you can ask each other, how's it going? Is there anything you've, you've, any sins you need to tell me about? Anything you've, you, where are you growing? What have you given up for Jesus Christ? Where, where are you finding joy? What, what's setting your heart on fire at the moment? Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, these are simple things. But that's how you fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you consider him. And that, according to this, is the solution for growing weary and losing heart. So let me ask you, as a close, um, what's your attitude? 
What's your attitude? Because this is the key to flourishing as a Christian believer. It's the attitude. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, he says. Listen, you can't do much to change your circumstances. Yeah? You can't do much. You're knee-deep in laundry, nappies, and washing up. You can't actually do much about that. You're struggling with long-term health issues or grief. You can't really change that. You're stuck in a dead-end job. Yeah, you can apply for other jobs, but there's a limit to what you can do. You can't do much to change your circumstances, but you can change your attitude, can't you? You're not responsible for your circumstances particularly, but you are responsible for your attitude within it. So are you ready for life? Are you arming yourself? Will you arm yourself with this same attitude? It's an interesting word he uses. The only time this word is used in the New Testament, arm yourselves, is a word that's often used of military preparation. Soldiers getting ready. And when a soldier gets ready for battle, as I understand it, they make sure their kit is in order. They make sure everything's lined up. They even have their shoes shining for some reason. They are ready, and they're ready because they know they might have to suffer. They know they might actually lose a limb or they might actually die, and they, they've got to get out there and do it. And So he says, arm yourselves with, this, with the attitude of Jesus. So let me ask, friends, you and those of you here are Christians, how are you approaching your life? Are you deeply committed to avoiding suffering at any cost? Deeply committed to making life as easy as possible. Comfortable. Do you feel entitled to a life that is free from suffering? To the extent that you actually feel surprised if you suffer. And maybe a bit hard done by. Hold on a minute, God. It wasn't supposed to be like this. What are you doing? If we think our lives are all about avoiding suffering, we are sleepwalking and utterly unprepared for life. We're like those sleepwalkers who wake up naked, locked out of the house. You ever heard about those people? Is it your friend who did that? I'm a sleepwalker, but I've never done that, thankfully. Peter would say, listen, wake up, you're following Christ. Not everyone is going to like you. You're following Christ. You're going to be totally at odds with the, the agenda of the pagan dream. But you'll be following Christ. Is he worth it? It's time to wake up. Time to change our attitude. To arm ourselves to change our approach to life. Arm yourself. Get ready with this attitude. The attitude that Christ had when he prepared himself to suffer in this life. Ready to serve ready to speak, ready to live in Christian reality because you know the glory that will come as we build the city of God together in this place. So let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And God bless you as you do that and seek to live like that this week. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we are challenged by your word. We realize how sluggish and slow and sleepy our hearts have become. Forgive us, Lord. 
how quickly we lose sight of spiritual realities, how quickly our eyes are blinded and our hearts are taken captive by this world and its promises, which are ultimately empty. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we are faithless. But grant us, we pray, strong faith. Grant us courage. Grant us humility to be open with one another. Grant us the strength to serve each other, to build each other up, so that we may become your city here in this great city of Manchester. For the glory of Jesus we pray it. Amen.